Welcome to this episode of Oberta Dicta, the legal and tax podcast from Bloomsbury Professional Ireland, hosted by me, Rachel Sherlock, and Gráinne McMahon. We have a jam-packed episode for you. Later, we will bring you the latest Irish legal developments that you need to know about, and find out why a court couple have made legal history, and lots more. But first, our interview with Tara Murphy. As listeners will know, Tara Murphy BL has a wealth of experience at the bar practicing in employment law and writing the monthly employment updates for our subscriber service, BPRO. The pandemic has presented many challenges for employers and employees with remote working and a complete change of landscape when it comes to employment issues. Tara, it's so lovely to have you with us today to chat about employment law. Now, I wanted to discuss with you a recent case where the issue of remote working came about. This is the case of an operations coordinator versus a facilities management service provider before the Workplace Relations Commission. Tara, would you mind telling me a little bit about the facts of the case? Yes, of course, Gronia. Um, So the complainant in this case was an operations coordinator and she'd been employed by a facilities management service provider. She'd been assigned to work with a client, a university, providing support to the client's accommodation manager, and she'd worked on site at the client's premises. She and her colleagues, uh, two other operations coordinators, had raised the issue of working from home during the pandemic on several occasions, including as part of a formal grievance. Given that most of their work could be done from home, They had proposed that a system be introduced whereby two of them would work from home and one would work on site on rotation. The complainant indicated that her main concern was the well-being of her husband and father-in-law, both of whom had underlying health conditions. The respondent, however, in this case, had refused the request to work from home. And in doing so, they had pointed to various protective measures it had put in place in the workplace including personal protective equipment or PPE and changing the physical layout of the office. It had also noted that it was providing an essential service and that the operations coordinators were performing an essential role that needed to be performed on site. So in this case, the complainant ultimately resigned and claimed constructive dismissal. And what did the adjudication officer decide? Well, in this case, um, just to kind of cut to the chase on it, Gourney, the adjudication officer decided that the complainant was entitled to consider herself constructively dismissed, having regard to both the contract test and also the reasonable test for constructive dismissal. In relation to the contract test, the adjudication officer held that the requirement that the complainant attend the workplace without adequate consideration of the elimination of risk as opposed to mitigation of risk by PPE, changing the physical layout of the office and so on, amounted to a repudiation of the contract. This arose, he said, because providing a safe place of work was a fundamental term of the contract of employment. And the respondent hadn't complied with the statutory framework, so the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act, by first seeking to eliminate the risk rather than mitigating it. And this caused the complainant to attend the work in greater danger. The risk, he noted, could have been readily eliminated or reduced through reasonable, practicable steps, which I would take to be a reference to the operations coordinator's proposal to work from home on rotation. 
He also emphasized that mitigation was not equivalent to elimination. Regarding the reasonableness test then, uh, the adjudication officer noted that the complainant had articulated a clear grievance and suggested how the work could be done in the safest way possible. He held that this had not been adequately considered by the respondent, leaving the complainant with no real option but to resign. The Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act 2005 very much came into play in the case. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, of course, Gornia. So the adjudication officer referred to various provisions of the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act, including in particular the employer's general duty to ensure, so far as is reasonably practical, the health and safety of the employees and the general principles of prevention. Now, regarding the general principles of prevention, the adjudication officer noted that these created a pyramid structure hierarchy of control in relation to how risks and hazards had to be addressed. As a result, the most effective way to address a risk was to eliminate it, followed by substitution, then by engineering or administrative controls. PPE, he said, was the last resort and the least effective measure. He also noted that the health and safety duties were an implied term in every contract of employment. So a clear emphasis in this case on the importance of trying to eliminate a risk before proceeding to consider what measures might be put in place to mitigate that risk. Very interesting findings, Tara. Now, the case involved constructive dismissal. And for those who may not be aware of the difference between the criteria a complainant must meet in relation to such a case, can you explain and talk to me about the contract test and the reasonableness test? Of course. So the first thing to note, Gronje, is that by contrast with cases involving dismissals by an employer, where a complainant claims constructive dismissal, they will bear the burden of proving their case on the balance of probabilities, which, as you know, is quite different to the normal course where the burden is on the employer to prove that the dismissal was not unfair. As for the contract test and the reasonableness test specifically, uh, the contract test, first of all, assesses whether the employer has been guilty of conduct that is a significant breach going to the root of the contract of employment or which shows that the employer no longer intends to be bound by one or more essential terms of the contract. So a repudiation of the contract, if you like. The reasonableness test, on the other hand, assesses whether the employer has conducted themselves or their affairs so unreasonably that the employee could not fairly be expected to put up with it any longer. In those circumstances, an employee would generally be expected to use an internal grievance procedure to raise their concerns first before proceeding down the path of resignation, which is exactly what happened in this case. So while the complainant in this case satisfied both tests, it should be noted, however, that it is sufficient for an employee to satisfy one or other in order to proceed with a constructive dismissal case. One or the other. That's so interesting, Tara. Listeners may be surprised that the complainant in this case wasn't awarded a large sum, but you might explain why. Yeah, so while the award might appear to be at the lower end of the scale, Gronia, this can be very much explained by reference to Section 7 of the Unfair Dismissals Act. Now, Section 7 provides that a maximum amount of 104 weeks remuneration 
may be awarded where there has been financial loss, including future loss, attributable to the dismissal and a maximum of four weeks remuneration where there has been no financial loss. So in this case, the complainant had suffered a relatively minor financial loss because she'd only been out of work for five weeks uh, when she took up a new and better paid role with a different employer. So um, the award in this case shouldn't be misunderstood to reflect kind of a lack of seriousness or significance in the case, but rather it reflects the fact that this particular complainant had suffered a relatively minor financial loss. So Tara, does this case provide any insight into the WRC's approach to considering disputes over requests to work from home or say work remotely during COVID-19? Well, there are definitely um, a couple of points that we can pull from Acronia. Obviously, it's it, it seems to be the first reported case um, on this area. So it very much sets, I suppose, an initial benchmark. A couple of the strands or a couple of the indicators that we can pull from it are that uh, the WRC certainly seems to be prepared to look behind the classifications of essential service and essential role. And consequently, these classifications uh, won't provide employers with a blanket uh, excuse or reason for not considering a request to work remotely. Also, we can see from this case that the WRC seems to be prepared to examine the constituent elements of a role and the interchangeability of staff to determine whether the role must in fact be performed either in whole or indeed in part on site. And again, this would lead us to believe that employers should consider requests to work remotely carefully and indeed on a case by case basis. So they'd be the kind of the the high level important sort of uh, indicators that I'd be pulling from this case. Lots to consider, Tara. Finally, COVID-19 has utterly changed the employment landscape with everyone having to adapt. We've been hearing that employers have a responsibility to employees working from home. Would you have any advice to employers who may need some tips, such as providing a good chair, etc.? That's right, Gronia. Um, So the Safety, Health and Welfare Work Act and indeed the Organisation of Working Time Act, which is another form of um, health and safety legislation, they impose various duties on employers and indeed some on employees themselves that apply notwithstanding that employees are now working from home. So at a very general level, these include the duties to provide a safe place of work, a safe system of work and indeed safe equipment and the duty to provide regular rest breaks. Um, So employers need to engage with employees to ensure that they're aware of any specific risks regarding working from home, that the work activity and workspace are suitable, and that they have suitable equipment to enable the work to be done at home. Probably a central, um, I suppose, piece of advice to give any employer is to keep the lines of communication very much open in that regard. Um, Equipment that's already used in the workplace, so whether it's a chair, a desk, a monitor, a headset, etc., can be used for temporary home working if if, um, it's needed. If the employer does provide any equipment like that um, to the employer, they have to ensure that it is in good condition and it's suitable for the work activity that's being undertaken. It has to be noted, however, that 
uh, suitable equipment that's already available in the employee's home can be considered uh, for working from home if indeed it's suitable. And just to mention, Gronia, you know, obviously we can over, only cover a kind of very high level advice during this particular interview. But for employers, um, the Health and Safety Authority's website has published an array of extremely useful information around um, employers' health and safety obligations. Um, and I am aware that they have updated uh, their guidance uh, most recently earlier this month. So definitely one to check out. Tara, thank you so much for providing such a useful update today and we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks so much, Gornia. You can check out Tara's employment law updates, which are updated monthly on the BPRO site at bloomsburyprofessional.com. So, Gronia, you've been editing our BPRO site across the latest legal developments this month. What's been happening? Yes, Rachel, lots of news on the COVID-19 front. Now, we've been covering the various high court challenges on quarantine, and you can find all of those reports on new and noteworthy on BPRO. As it stands, we'll have to wait and see how the quarantine debacle plays out for those who've been vaccinated and those coming from EU countries. But you have some good news for employees who might be finding it hard to switch off from work duties while working from home. Yeah, Rachel. So now employees here in Ireland have the right to disconnect from work outside of working hours. And that's as part of enhanced employment rights, which have now come into force after the signing into law of a new code of practice by the government. Now, the code is in place and it means that employees are entitled not to have to remotely perform work outside of their working hours. They can't be penalised for refusing to do so. And while it's not an offence to break the code drawn up by the Workplace Relations Commission, workers who are routinely asked to perform duties outside of their working hours can bring that up in proceedings before a court such as the WRC or the Labour Court. Now, it's aimed at helping employees who feel obligated to work longer hours and those agreed in their terms and conditions of employment. It is worth remembering that there's no formal right to disconnect under Irish or European law, but it's hoped that this new code will allow employees to switch off from work outside of working hours. And then in personal injury news, the High Court awarded the largest settlement ever. Yeah, Rachel, this was the case of a 16-year-old girl who received a settlement of £23.5 million in what is the largest ever personal injury settlement in the state. Camila Quee from Carrigaline in County Cork suffered catastrophic brain injuries during her birth. Now, she took a case to the High Court through her father. There was no admission of liability from the HSC and the award was reached after mediation. Now, Camila was born on the 22nd of December 2004 at St. Finbar's Hospital in Cork. And the High Court in this case heard that she was next to death and in extremely poor condition when she was born. It was claimed that although there was continuous monitoring of the fetal heart rate at the onset of labour, monitoring was intermittent for the last two hours before her delivery, contrary to guidelines in place at the time. And Camila suffered a brain injury as a result of a lack of oxygen. The court heard that Camila is profoundly disabled, non-verbal, tube-fed, doubly incontinent and attends a special school. And the family said that they hoped that the settlement will allow for the purchase of a new home. And finally, some important news for same-sex couples. Yes, Rachel, same-sex couples will be delighted with this news. Now, 
a same-sex couple in Cork became the first in Ireland to be legally recognised as parents of their babies from birth. Geraldine Ree and Neve O'Sullivan are the parents of Radine and Evine O'Sullivan Ree. They've been named as parents of the girls in a landmark move in Ireland where they didn't have to go through a court process and their daughters were born just over nine weeks ago. Now the couple are celebrating legal recognition as parents and that's after the enactment in May last year of the final sections of the 2015 Child and Family Relationships Act. Now prior to this female same-sex couples had to go through the courts in a long process to re-register the birth of their children so both of them could be legally recognised as parents of a child. But the new legislation recognises as parents both the birth mother and her spouse, civil parent or cohabitant, where a child was donor-conceived through donor-assisted human reproduction. So good news there. So, Rachel, over to you. And we've had a number of additions to BPRO this month in terms of ebooks added to the service. Yeah, there's been lots of new books available to subscribers of Bloomsbury Professional Online. Among them, the fourth edition of Commercial Law by Michael Ford. This book covers consumer law, commercial case law, insolvency rules in Ireland and regulation regimes. This updated edition includes Irish case law as well as the UK, EU and Canada. Also just landed is the 2020 edition of the Arthur Cox Employment Law Yearbook. Subscribers will know this is an annual book from Arthur Cox and it has valuable case notes and legislation. That's available now on our Employment Law Service. Will's Irish Precedents and Drafting, third edition by Brian Spearin, has been added to the site. It's a very practical book and has been completely revised and updated to include case law up to September 2020 and a new chapter on wills that deal with digital assets. We also have Drug Offences in Ireland, second edition by Garnet Orange, which deals with all key areas of drugs law. And in our medical service, we have A Practical Guide to Medical Negligence Litigation, first edition by Michael Boylan. In tax, we have Capital Tax Acts 2021 by Michael Buckley, which includes all changes from the Finance Act 2020. And finally, Mediation Law by Penelope McRedmond 2018 is now available to subscribers of Irish Civil Litigation. Well, that's it for this episode of Overture Dicta. You can follow us at Bloomsbury Professional Ireland on Facebook and Instagram. Our next episode features Simon Mills, who speaks about medical negligence and the right to die, the impact of COVID-19 on the litigation system and life in radio as a GP, and then to becoming one of Ireland's best-known barristers. 